Hey, uh, one other thing, you can grab your Bible, but also your bulletin. There's another insert we wanted to highlight in, in your bulletin this morning. Uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago as we enter into this new year, one of the things that we are going the, through the process of doing is turning the page on our past and moving forward uh, as a church and also personally, most importantly. And part of that process is, is a thing called repentance, which means I choose to turn away from the way I used to live. I ask for God's forgiveness through Jesus, and then I move forward. And so because that's so important in where we are as a church and where we are as individuals, we are actually going to, to take a time for about two weeks, the first two weeks of February, to actually fast and pray as a church. Fasting means giving up primarily food to actually set aside that, being willing to give up something in order to spend time in, in engaging God and listening to what he says, confessing our sin, very important things like that. And so the, from about, I think it's February 3rd to uh, the, the 16th to the 17th right there, and then on the evening of the 18th, We'll come together as a church family on that, that night and have an opportunity just to worship together and pray, uh, and share communion together. It's a really important time as we walk through this season of change, not only the transition with building and moving to a different location, but most importantly, what God is doing in us. And so I want to encourage you to take some time to, to do that. Now, some of you may not be able to do a complete fast or even fast food at all, because maybe because of dietary issues and things like that. And not fast food. I know we all eat fast food, but fasting meaning not eating food. So understanding that, that maybe it's, it's a partial fast, or maybe it's certain foods, or maybe you, you, you can't uh, adjust your diet at all. Maybe there's something else in your life for that two-week period. Say, you know what, I can set that aside. I can forego that so that uh, I can embrace what, what God's doing. So there's an insert in your bulletin that gives some instruction on that, on what you can do in terms of fasting. But I think it's really important in the season that we all walk through this together as a church family. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open to uh, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 27 through 30. And uh, we are again walking through this series called Disciple, and we are walking through the teachings of Jesus and Matthew, and we are in uh, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And now we've reached a point, if you're here last week, we're going through a number of things in chapter 5 where, where Jesus pretty much says, listen, if you really want to understand what it means to be a follower of mine, if you want to understand what it means to be righteous, then your righteousness has to go beyond that of the Pharisees. Pharisees were the religious leaders that had it all together on the outside, but had nothing going for them on the inside because they weren't transformed. And so Jesus goes from the surface level to really deep things. And so we're going to hit some really tough stuff. Last week we talked about anger and offense and dealing with relationships. And another one of those relational landmines, and if, just like last week when you walked in, if you grabbed a bulletin, probably the biggest word on the bulletin is the word lust. Everybody's favorite topic. So but I want a couple things before we jump to this passage that you first for you to be aware of. For starters... This is a PG-13 message, and I do mean PG-13. So if you have children in, in the service right now and you'd prefer them not to be a part of a PG-13 experience, then there's classes available for them. This is appropriate for middle school, high schoolers. You're okay in here. But we're going to talk very directly about the issue of lust because Jesus talks very directly about the issue of lust in our lives in these verses. Also, a second thing I want you to understand as we walk through uh, the passage together and the things that we talk about Anytime we talk about sexual sin or sexuality or lust issues, normally one of the things that happens is if that's been something that's been either part of your past or your present, this thing called shame always begins to enter the equation. And so what happens, even some of you right now, I'm not, I don't see anybody doing this, but I know internally you're squirming right now because you feel a sense of shame over your life, over your past, because you failed in this area. And I want you to know that God wants you to turn down the volume on your shame today. Because what happens is when you start rehearsing all the points of failure in your life, you don't hear what the Holy Spirit's trying to say to you today. 
So because God is a God of grace through Jesus' death on the cross, he forgives sexual sin. And he erases the shame and the condemnation that anyone wants to put on us. And you need to understand that's true of the God that we serve. And because of that, turn down the volume on your shame. Listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say today. What, what, what God wants us to understand about who we are. God has created us as sexual beings. We have to come to grips with what that looks like in our life. So with those things being said, as if I mentioned, you have your Bible. Let me go ahead and read verse 27 to 30 of Matthew uh, chapter 5. So Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole, your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So as we start by looking at that, I want to talk just a little bit about what is adultery. Now, when Jesus says the words that he says here, it's really important to understand the context. He's actually quoting the seventh commandment about adultery. So when he says that, as he goes through this series of things in chapter 5, is he says, you've heard that it was said, but then he says, but I tell you. And so what he does, he said, you've heard that it was said at the surface level. And last week we, we talked about, he said, you don't, do not murder this week, do not commit adultery. But there's a deeper level of what the law was supposed, was supposed to accomplish. And then it's not an issue of what's on the surface. It's an issue of what's in the heart. And so when Jesus quoted that, when he said, oh, they would, they would have said, oh, yeah, we know, we know the law. We know do not commit adultery. But then when Jesus goes and says, let me define for you what adultery looks like, the group that he was speaking to would have been a bit shocked and stunned at what he said. And the reason why is because in the Old Testament, the way that the law was set up is that obviously God gave the law, but then Israel over time began to define how to live out the law. So they would actually describe what does it mean to commit adultery. So the definition that over time that the religious leaders came up with to define adultery became extremely narrow. And we all know that when we, we want to feel justified in a sin that we're involved in, we make sure that the definition of that sin is very narrow, so there's lots of room to still do it, yet still not feel like somehow that we're sinning or we're failing. That's what they did with adultery. So they took the narrowest definition of adultery, which was sexual relations with a married woman. That was the only category that they had for adultery, which justified for them a lot of other behaviors, like what was happening quite frequently is that if you had sex with a woman that wasn't married, the only penalty that you had was, of course, the penalty for adultery was death, but the only penalty you had if you were having sex with a woman that wasn't married is you had to marry her. That was, isn't that great to be the penalty of, you know, that? So that's why many times in the scriptures you will see men with multiple wives because in some situations they were having sex with single women and then they had to marry them because they didn't want to have the penalty of the law. So for them, honestly, when Jesus said this, most likely there's people standing there who are involved with sexual relationships outside their marriage, feeling like they're justified according to the law. Then when Jesus says, you want to know what adultery really is, and he goes to the deeper level, if you even think or look upon a woman, he doesn't say married woman, a woman, you've committed that act in your heart. You've lusted, you've committed adultery. So this was a whole deeper definition for them. And it's important for us to understand that because sometimes we do that as well. We kind of split hairs. And God's not concerned with the letter of the law. God's concerned with the law that's written on our heart. And that's what he's trying to deal with here for us to understand that. And you and I need to embrace this because understanding adultery helps us to understand how we deal with our own sexual sin in our life. See, sometimes we miss that. So, so to understand the, the purpose behind 
the lust, the purpose behind the act is what Jesus is trying to get to. That's the core issue in us. The ultimate physical act of intercourse or adultery or sex outside the context of marriage is the outcome of what's already present. It doesn't just happen in the physical act. It's already happened before it got there. And that's why the best understanding or the best uh, biblical definition for adultery is it's the thought or the intent of a sexual experience with someone other than your spouse. As well, the way that the, the passage is constructed, the context of lust didn't just have to do with your thought process towards another person. It had to do with also the actions of the way you portrayed yourself to other people. In other words, if you were intending to try to get somebody else to notice you in a sexual way or cause you to lust, you were committing adultery. So the way that you looked, the way that you dressed, the way you acted, the way you flirted, all those kinds of things, Jesus is now encompassing all of that in the way that we approach each other. So that's the definition of adultery. So now that becomes far broader than what they had originally tried to narrow it to. So understanding that, let's move forward. It's getting really quiet in here already. I can tell we're already squirming. So what motivates lust? Jesus, when he talks about the seventh commandment, actually what he's referring to in the motivation of breaking the the seventh commandment and committing adultery is he's referring to the tenth commandment, which is about coveting. Let me read from uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, You should not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In that, that is the foundation of where lust comes from. It comes from this category that somehow what we have is not enough. And what is over there is better than what, what is in front of us. So three things that really are the core foundation of where lust comes from in our hearts. The first one, it's a lack of contentment in our life. That we've reached a point in our life where we feel like we can never be satisfied with what we have. And especially in the context of the sexual arena. That I'm not satisfied with what I have in this current relationship or in my marriage. Therefore, I begin to look out or act outside of the context that God's purpose for my life. And the reason we do that is because in our mind we have bought into this lie that somehow the grass is really greener on the other side. That somehow it's got to be a better experience somewhere else. And so we begin to look outside of the context that God's created us for. In fact, the whole concept of pornography is built upon that foundation. That it is selling something that makes you think that what you have currently cannot possibly be as good as what's being offered somewhere else. That's the whole concept of pornography. In our culture, we have bought into that. That's why porn, porn is a billion-dollar industry in our country. Because it sells this lie to us that you really should be dissatisfied with what you have in your sexual experience. And you should have something else outside of that that can be even better. There's a problem with that. That porn never, ever answers to satisfaction in our lives. Because what it does is it sells something it can never deliver on. And so what happens is when you and I begin to follow that, when you and I begin to see images on a screen or a video or a magazine or whatever it might be on your phone, what ends up happening in our lives is we're buying into this lie that it could somehow be better than what I'm experiencing right now. Or it's something that maybe I know I'm supposed to wait for, but I can have it right now and it will deliver on what I want it to have in my life. I have never met a person that says that they can watch and look and experience a little bit of pornography. I haven't met that person yet. Oh, it's just occasional. It's just a little bit. Either they're lying or it's been the first time. Because what porn does is it keeps egging you on. It keeps putting a hook in you to pull you down this road that a little bit more is going to be better. 
And a little bit grander is going to make the experience a little bit better than it was before. And before you know it, you are addicted to it. And now the very thing that you thought would bring pleasure to you, you are a slave to. That's how pornography grows. And that's how the porn industry, don't think that the porn industry doesn't know that. That's why it's so prolific. That's why it's so easy to access. That's why it's so easy to make money off porn because they know our human condition is bent towards that. It's towards something that it's, we're being sold this lie about somehow this experience will be better if it's some other context than what's in front of me. Second thing is that you and I understand that our lust is motivated by a lack of value for other people. So we have this discontent in our life, so we're looking somewhere else for it to be fulfilled. But then what happens in this concept of, of coveting something that we don't have is the thing that we covet is a means to our end. So when you look at another person to lust after them, you don't care about the person, you just care about what you can get from them. And so what happens in the process of lust is that we begin to do, dehumanize people around us. They no longer, we no longer see them as a human being. We simply see them as an object, which is a means to our end of pleasure. So whether it's through our eyes and our hearts, or maybe actually through the actual action, what happens is we no longer think of that person in a state of value, because all we think about is what they represent to us or what they can give us. That's the motivation, and that's what's underneath the surface, is that ultimately what we begin to do is we only see people and how they will benefit us, not how we can care and benefit for them. That's the ultimate act of rape. The rage inside of a person, the control inside of a person, leads to rape ultimately. Why? Because that person is not a person anymore. They simply are a means to my end. That's the ultimate outcome. And, and most every sexual predator that you ever know, not, not even to say most, every, every single one of them started with porn. That's where it leads to. I'm like, well, no, I just dabble with it. I'm not going to be a serial killer. I'm not going to rape anybody. That's the end result of it. How do you counter that? See, what you and I have to understand is God created man and woman to be in the context of marriage. And for your understanding of sexuality and beauty and what is an ultimate guy or what is an ultimate girl is only found in the context of your spouse. God has created you this way. And what that means is that if you're going to value your spouse and understand them and love them, then they become the definition of the ultimate male or the ultimate female to you. Not because you have to work this up and pretend it, but because you're not looking anywhere else for the definition. You're only looking in the right place for the definition because you value the person that God has given to you. The reason that's so important is because I've, I've, I can't tell you how many times, and now, ladies, I know you're guilty of this too, but I see it a lot with guys. But maybe it's just because guys are a little bit more stupid than women. I just, that I know, because I am one. But it's, it's like I've heard guys say this in front of their wives. You know, they're, they're married to a brunette and say, you know, I really, my type is a blonde. What do you think that does to your wife? And if a blonde walks by and they turn their head, I'm like, I'm just looking. There's nothing, no big deal about it. And what does that do to her? completely devalues her. And it's like, I've heard guys or, or ladies talk about, you know, like a certain actor or actress and, oh, it's just, you know, I just think they're good looking. Like, like Brad Pitt is so hot. I've heard people like, and their husband looks nothing like Brad Pitt. And what do you think that does to him? It completely devalues him. Why? Because what you like in Brad Pitt is he's a means to your end of pleasure, visually. That's what happens. So your ultimate definition of beauty is your spouse or is your wife, your ultimate or ideal image of what a husband or a man should be, is your husband. Nobody else. My ultimate definition of beauty is Kim. It is. 
There is no other definition of what beauty is to me except for her. Because I don't bother to look anywhere else because I've already been given the gift that God wanted to give to me in her. So she's the definition of beauty. That should be true of you and your spouse. That ultimately God, and it's not, you don't understand this. You think, well, I don't know, I've, I've seen a lot of other guys or a lot of other ladies and their body is far superior to them to my spouse. So you're missing the point. Because again, if all you see is the skin, then all you're doing is again devaluing your spouse for your own means. What makes somebody handsome or what makes somebody beautiful really has very little to do with their outward appearance. It has to do with inwardly what's going on inside of them. That's what makes somebody beautiful. Now you can see, you know, you can have physical attraction, but you can't understand beauty unless you truly know somebody. You can see the most attractive man or woman in the world, but they're ultimately not beautiful or handsome according to what that really means unless you know them. That's what beauty is. So your definition needs to get really focused and really narrow down to your spouse because you value them and who God has given to you. Then it leads to a third motivation, and that is our motivation to lust is that we lack trust. Somehow we become dissatisfied, and so we think that God can't satisfy us, so we really don't trust him. We think he's gotten too narrow-minded in his approach to think that, you mean, sex is only supposed to be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage? That's way too narrow. That's way too rigid. There's got to be a wider variety of sexual experiences to bring pleasure. It's got to be bigger than that. But God says, no, this is where the way I designed you. This is the way I've defined what it's supposed to be. But you and I don't trust him. So we try to define sexuality our way. And you see what happens in our culture when we try to redefine what God has already defined. It doesn't work. But we want to say that it does. And we miss it because why? We don't trust him. It goes back to the garden. Why did Adam and Eve sin? Because they didn't trust God. Can you imagine being in that place where there's a million things that you can do right, but there's only one thing you can do wrong, and that's what Adam and Eve chose, right? You can have anything except don't eat from the one tree. What did they do? They ate from the tree. And why did they do that? Because you remember the dialogue between Eve and the serpent? Because he says, did God really say? And he tells her, God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because your eyes will be open and you will be like him. And he's holding out on you. Don't trust him. That's what the serpent was saying. And the same lie comes to you and I today in our sexuality and that we can't somehow believe that God really knows what he's talking about, that somehow this thing called sex is meant to be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage because we don't ultimately trust him. Are you and I going to trust him? Are we going to obey what he says because somehow he really does know what's best for us? See, we have these, these ideas that somehow it is going to be better. And if I do this, it'll be more satisfying. And so I'm going to trust my own instincts and desires over what God has said is right for my life. When I was in the fourth grade, I had a good friend and his name was Harris. And, and at that time, when I was in fourth grade, the really cool thing for all the guys to do was to wear wristbands. Anybody ever remember wristbands? It was the things that you wore, even though you never sweat, you didn't really ever wipe them on your forehead. It just looked really cool. And I remember Harris had the coolest ones. The coolest ones were the red, white, and blue ones. And so Harris would wear those every day. And I was like, if, you know, the ultimate, like, fourth grader would be Harris because he had the wristbands and he was cool. But one day, I remember Harris, I watched him. He was taking off his wristbands and he set them down on a bench behind a classroom. And we went out at lunchtime when we were playing. And, and so it ended, the day ended, and I was heading home. And I remembered Harris had taken off his wristbands and I didn't remember if he'd put them back on. And so I walked down this corridor where this classroom was, where this bench was, 
And sure enough, there were his wristbands. And so I stopped and I looked around and I thought, oh, they're all mine. And I grabbed them and I put them on and I looked at my hands and I thought, I am a stud. I have wristbands. And I remember, so I got on my bike and I rode home and I'm just feeling so good about myself, thinking everybody on the streets, is they're not looking at me because I have red, white, and blue wristbands. That was so cool. And I remember I got home and I started riding around my neighborhood. And I remember as I'm riding around my neighborhood, I'm wanting everybody to notice me because I have wristbands. And I remember some of my friends never even noticed I was wearing wristbands and it really, it really ate at me because I thought, you've got to know, I have wristbands, I'm cool now. And so as the day went on, as I'm riding around enjoying the wristbands, I'm realizing that all the fame that I was going to garner from wearing wristbands wasn't there. Nobody could care less. In fact, the only person that really noticed that I had wristbands on was at the end of the day when I went in my house and my mom saw me wearing them. And she knew that she didn't get them and my dad didn't get them. And she said, where'd you get those wristbands? And I thought for just a moment I could just pretend like somebody lost them and I don't know whose they are. And she knew that. I said, I confess. I said, yeah, they, they belong to Harris. They're not mine. And she goes, well, you need to take them back. I remember after that, I never, never really cared as much about wristbands anymore because I wore them for a day and realized they didn't deliver on what I thought they would give me. See, you and I have the same approach when it comes to sex. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to figure it out on my own because I'm convinced it's going to be more than what they're... Somehow God's holding out on me. He's lying to me about what sex is all about. That's the culture that we live in. and doesn't work out too well when we buy our own thinking in our sexuality. It leads to a destructive life. So understanding that's the foundation of what brings us to a place of being motivated to lust, to look and to mentally act on our feelings or our attraction to somebody else who's not our spouse. So with that in mind, now you may be wondering, when we get to verse 29 and 30, is how do you and I live in purity? How do we actually get to the place where we're not dominated by our thoughts or our sexual addiction or our lust? So Jesus says in verse 29 30, let me read these verses and we'll talk about them. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, before we just look at those verses, let me just give a little qualifier here. So many times these two verses are used to bring extreme legalism in the area of sexuality. And I think it's wrong. Because what happens is we take this beautiful gift called sex that God has given to a husband and wife in the context of marriage, and we lace it with shame, guilt, and condemnation. And we make it as though, you and I excuse the word, but we have to be prudish to be a Christian. It's not true. Because we use these to say, oh my goodness, you can't ever see anything bad. You've got to make sure that you go through your life. In fact, put on the blinders, cover your eyes, never see anything wrong, never do anything wrong, never, never be in the culture because somehow you're going to see something you shouldn't see. And we live in constant fear. And this is what's amazing. And I've seen this through counseling is that we do that in the church. And then when our kids get into their 20s and then they get married and they've been told, no, 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 and they don't understand sexuality because nobody wants to talk about it because they're afraid of it. Now, honestly, they are sexually handicapped because they don't know what to do. Because this very thing that has been laced with shame and guilt and condemnation their whole life, it's still part of it. And they can't get past it. Because we've taken verses like this and we've slammed it into our kids saying, no, 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 no. And yet we never explain to them why. And we never gave me any room for dialogue because we just, what, we just gouge it out and we just cut it off and we don't talk about it. So let's understand what Jesus was saying here. 
Three things I want to highlight are very important. The first thing that you and I need to understand about purity is that we have to take our sexual sin seriously. This is a big deal. In fact, Jesus, he's using extreme examples when he says to gouge out your eye and to cut off your hand. Those are extreme examples. And he throws in there, by the way, it's better for you to enter into heaven or into the kingdom minus a limb or an eye than it is to take all of who you are and end up in hell. That's how serious he is about it. He's not being literal. He's not saying, if you ever see something wrong with your eye, gouge it out. If you ever do something wrong with your hand, cut it off. He's not saying that. What's crazy is through the centuries, people in the church have tried to take these passages literally. There are church fathers. There's one church father that actually had himself castrated so that he wouldn't commit adultery. The problem is, the definition of adultery happens way before the physical act ever does. What Jesus is saying is, you and I have to be very serious about this deal and this issue in our life. Because it's the very thing, if you and I continue to follow it, just as any sin, but continue to follow the path of sexual addiction and violating what he's purposed for our life, it's something that will lead us away from him. And the ultimate outcome of being away from him is this thing called hell. And none of us want to go there. But understanding that, so taking this seriously, let me ask you to mention just a couple things that are real important. Why do we take it so seriously? The first thing is you and I have to understand the impact of our sexual sin. Now, sin impacts us all, and a sin is a sin. Jesus doesn't categorize them and say, this one is worse than this one. But the impact of sin in our life varies according to our behavior. The beautiful thing is that God forgives sin, and God renews things, and God restores things. But you and I have to understand there is an impact of our life in sin. The ultimate penalty of sin has been paid for on the cross. That's the beautiful thing. Because of our sin, we're not disqualified from being with God. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have his forgiveness. But the impact in this life of our sin can linger in our lives, especially in the sexual arena. And that's why we have to be extremely careful in this area. Because it does stay with us. And one of the reasons why is understand is so profound is that the, the whole concept of what it is to be married, to be a man and a woman, and to be what the Bible calls one flesh, is a direct reflection of the nature of God. God created human beings, male and female, on purpose, because male and female together reflect the nature of God. That's what Genesis 2 talks about. When it says a, a husband or a man will leave his family, leave his parents, and he will cling and be bound to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The word one there is the same word that Jesus uses when he says that he and the Father are one. The nature of God is reflected in marriage and in, actually in the act of the sexual experience in the marriage that brings the ultimate bond of oneness. That's why, that's why Jesus is so serious about this. He said, you're reflecting the nature of who I am in the Godhead, that three in one, and the Father and the Son being one, in your marriage relationship, in that bond that's not violated, in the unity and the, the purity of your relationship in the sexual arena is a reflection of God. That's why we have to take this so seriously and why the impact is so deep in our lives. Because one of the things you have to understand, sex is never just physical. It isn't. I've heard people say, oh, what's the big deal? I mean, it's like kissing, right? I mean, so it's physical contact. What's the big deal? It's not. It's emotional and it's spiritual. There are spiritual dynamics to it. And every time you engage in a sexual experience with somebody else, you give a part of yourself away that you can't get back. You can't get it back. 
Now, God can forgive and God can renew and God can work out reconciliation relationship in a beautiful way, but you've given a portion of yourself away. And you need to be careful and you need to think about that. You need to take it seriously. So here's a simple example that I've talked to. In fact, I talked to a lot of college students about this when we were in Newburgh. And this helped them because they were dealing, not being married, at the height of their sex drive before they get married. And this was a huge issue on a Christian college campus up in the Northwest. So when I was growing up, I liked Tonka trucks. And I had a lot of friends who liked Tonka trucks. So let's just say, and one of my friends, he invites me to his birthday. And so I know he loves the Tonka truck. So I go out with my mom and we buy the biggest, the coolest looking Tonka truck we can get. You know, the big dump truck with the yellow, you know, everybody remember those? I know I'm old. You're like, Tonka trucks, what's that? It's not on a screen. I don't know what it is, right? But, you know, when people used to play outside and you actually get their hands dirty, that's yeah, when I grew up. So Tonka truck. So we go out and we buy it and it's the coolest thing you get home. And, and it's like four or five days till his birthday party. So we wrap it up in the box and it's waiting there. And so I'm excited about it. He's going to love the Tonka truck. So the next day, another friend comes over. And he likes Tonka trucks too. And I'm thinking, man, it would really be fun to play with the Tonka truck with this other friend. In fact, let's do it. So I unwrap the box and we go outside and we're playing and we're having a good time. I'm thinking, I'll clean it off at the end of the day. And he's, my friend, when, when we get to Saturday, he's not even going to know. It's going to look brand new still. And I'll put it back in the box. I'll be really careful. And so we play and it's fun and everything. And so we put it back and clean it up. And I, in my eyes, it looks real new. And so then the next day I, I rewrapped it. Another friend comes over and he likes Tonka trucks too. And I'm thinking, hmm, okay. I could be really popular here. So I said, let's play it. So I break it out and we're playing and everything. But then as we're playing it, he kind of scuffs the door on the truck. And, and I start cleaning it up in the end and I can't get the scuff out. And I'm thinking, well, it's just a little scuff. You know, my friend probably won't see it. So I wrap it up. And, and the third day, another friend comes over. I'm thinking, you know, I've gotten away with it twice. Maybe I can do it three times. So I pull out the truck again and we're playing. But this time, one of the wheels falls off. And I put it back on, think, oh, it'll be okay. And so I clean it off, and I put the wheel back on. I try to wipe the scuff down, and I wrap it back up, and I get to, the, to Saturday, come to my friend's birthday party, and I give him the gift. And then I watch his face as he opens it. And the first thing he sees is the scuff on the door. And the next thing he sees is the wheel fall off. How happy do you think he is to get the Tonka truck? Do you think that he knows it's been used a few times? Yeah, he does. You and I need to understand that's the gift of our sexuality that God has given to each one of us. That it's only been given to us to give to one person. So, ladies or especially younger girls, guys that put pressure on you to have sex with them, this is what you should say to them. It's not your Tonka truck, okay? <laughs> Seriously. And in our church, guys, if you ever start pushing the issue and you hear that, you better back off, Okay? Because that Tonka truck is made for one person and one person only. And unless you're their spouse and you've been married, then it's not your Tonka truck. You can get your hands off it, okay? The second thing that we need to take this seriously is because the cost of ignoring this sin. You and I cannot ignore this issue in our life. We have to be willing to deal with it. And that's why Jesus made it so clear. That's why there's not too many times that Jesus throws in kind of the hell thing in there. And this is one that comes in there. He's serious. It's not that those sexual sin is the unpardonable sin that will send you to hell, but it is something about sexuality that gets a hook in us that keeps dragging us away further and further from God in our lives. And that's why there's such a strong warning. That's why it's something you and I have to be willing to take seriously in this. So the second thing about living purely, how do we live in purity, is you and I need to learn to monitor our sight. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, what does he say? Gouge it out. Using an extreme example. 
Now, Jesus chooses the eye and the hand on purpose. Everything that Jesus says is on purpose. He doesn't just throw out something off the cuff and th- thought, oh, that was good for the moment. He's intentionally mentioning the eye because the eye is the lens to the heart, and the heart is the pathway to the soul. And what you and I let come in penetrates far deeper than just what our physical eyes see. It goes deep into who we are. And that's why he says if, you, if your eye is open to seeing things and penetrates deep within you, it's going to affect you. It's going to impact you. And that's why learning to monitor our sight is very important. But listen, some of you are already thinking, man, I can't, I can't even, I better just like put blinders on all day, get those really thick dark glasses and never even look at another human being. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because what he's saying is he's talking about the intent of the heart that knows exactly what it's doing. So when it comes to our sight, there's actually three categories of how you and I see things that I think Jesus is defining what the one most specific is to us. But there's three categories. The first one is accidental. That's when you accidentally see something that you know you probably shouldn't see, but you couldn't help it. It was put in front of you. It was was something you saw by accident. That happens all the time. That's what's called being human. When you step outside your front door, when you wake up in the morning, you see things that you know maybe you shouldn't see. That's an accident. There's a second category, and that's circumstantial. That's when you're in a situation where you know there's a good chance you're going to see something. Something's going to come through the lens of your soul that you probably shouldn't see because you're in a circumstance that lends itself towards that. But then there's the third category, which I really think Jesus is talking about here, and that's the intentional category. That's when you and I know we've intentionally put ourselves in a circumstance hoping and knowing that we're going to see something that we shouldn't see because we really want to see it. That's where Jesus says, if you're at that point, it's better to cut that off. Cut that part of your life off. Don't make that a part of your life any longer because that's going to lead to a place that you don't want to go. See that, you know, this, this kind of scenario unfolded in David's life. David is the example of how lust works in our lives. And we've all probably heard the story of David and Bathsheba. But understand the way that David... So this is my understanding. And I I might be reading between the lines, but I know human beings and I know guys. I understand. When David was on his rooftop, when, by the way, if you read the beginning part of the passage, what should David have been doing? He should have been off fighting a war with his soldiers. But he wasn't. First problem. Second problem, when he's up on his roof... And he just happens to see Bathsheba. I don't think anything just happened. I'm pretty convinced that David had been there before. And he knew what time of day that she bathed. And he knew where to look. So he put himself, not where it was accidental. Oh, I happened to see Bathsheba. No, it was definitely circumstantial. It was intentionally putting himself in the circumstances. And how do we know that? Because I'm pretty positive because of the ultimate outcome that came next, David had already lusted in Bathsheba before that moment ever happened. Because what happens is you and I begin with lust in the heart and lust in the mind. And before you know it, you think, oh, I can stop there. You can't. And David couldn't. Because I'm convinced he had seen her before. And this time it had grown to the point now where he took action. And he sent a servant to go get Bathsheba. And you know the story. They had sex. She gets pregnant. And in one scenario of David's life, the man after God's own heart, the ultimate king that David, David was for Israel, in one moment he becomes an adulterer, a deceiver, and a murderer. Where did that come from? It started with lust. You think, oh, I will never, ever do that. You have the potential in you. It started with lust because why? David didn't choose to watch what his eyes were seeing. 
He didn't monitor himself. If he would have chosen first to go off to war, it would have saved him. Secondly, I know she bathes at that time. I shouldn't go out on my roof because I'm going to see something I sure shouldn't see. David had plenty of opportunity to not do what he did, but he chose to do it. Why? Because he was bent on it. You and I need to monitor what we see. Now, please understand, don't live in this legalistic, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just saw that. I'm going to die and go to hell. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's the intent of our heart. It's not the accidental, oh, I saw that, and, you know, I'm going to turn away and, and, not, and make sure that I don't have to look at that again. It's making sure you and I live our lives that way, which leads to the third area, and that is learning to monitor our actions. Because Jesus says, okay, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If there's an action in your life, if there's something that happens in your life that is something that ongoingly becomes an issue for you, then you need to be serious enough to eliminate that from your life. The ultimate action, which is the outcome of what we see, becomes the action through our hands and through our bodies. And really, I think what Jesus is talking about for you and I is he's talking about triggers. See, all of us have them. And in every sin, not even sexuality, but in every sin in our life, there is always a trigger that precedes that failure in our life. And it's a trigger that you and I know what the trigger is, or we learn what the trigger is. And if you and I avoid that trigger, we avoid the sin. But if we don't, then we find ourselves where we don't want to be. There's triggers in our life. And so there's places, even activities that you know that you get involved in, and you know you're one or two or three steps away from going down a road, you don't want to go down. Jesus is saying, cut that portion of your life off. It's not worth it because that one portion of your life will cost you everything else. Know what the trigger is. Know where you need to steer clear of. Know what you, kind of behavior you need to not be a part of because you know what comes next. So cut it off. I've told you before, growing up, my mom was very much into health food and tried to make us eat healthy. And I know as a, as a young adult and since I've grown older, I've constantly rebelled against that. And, but it was funny when I, you know, when you go away to school, it's a very emotional thing. When you go away to college, you're away from home for the first time, you know, some people cry and all these things, not in my family. My mom was so concerned. She knew that I would go out and eat McDonald's every day. This was her gift. Her one and only gift to me as I left our home to go to college was a multivitamin. That's what she gave me. She said, honey, I know that you're not going to eat really well, but please, would you just take one of these every day? It'll make you make my mom, your mom feel better. And to this day, I still take a multivitamin. And every time I grab, I think of my mom you know, years and years later. But I know for me over time, that's one of my downfalls, seriously, is I probably should eat better than I I have. But one of the areas for me, and Kim will tell you this, is I love sugar cereal really bad. And the worst place in the supermarket for me is the cereal aisle. It is. Because when I walk down the cereal aisle, I see all the things I was never allowed to have. And I'll walk by and I'll say, oh, Lucky Charms. You know, the marshmallow kind of crunches a little bit, then it gets soft in milk. You know what I'm talking about? Cocoa Krispies. Oh, chocolate milk and Rice Krispies all in one. And then when, you know, when it it saturates the milk and then the milk is like pure chocolate and you drink it, is it, is this just me or anybody else relate? Okay. And so when I get on the cereal aisle, it's funny, Kim, even to this day, I've gotten better. But if I get on the cereal aisle, you know what she does? Oh, honey, I'll see you later. I'm just going to keep shopping. She'll just keep going because I'll be like, oh, wow. And I'll know, you know, the problem for me is as you get a little bit older, you start to realize there's a price to be paid when you go through a whole box of Cocoa Krispies in one night. So now I find myself looking at things like Raisin Bran and shredded wheat. 
I'm sorry, but that's like for senior citizens. And I'm like looking at that thinking I should have that, but I really want Captain Crunch, right? So you know what? Sometimes I still actually, I seriously will do. I won't go on the cereal aisle. In fact, I'll tell Kim, honey, pick up some raisin bran when you're on the cereal aisle. I will meet you at the next aisle because I don't want to go on that aisle because I want to be there. And so it's the same thing in our lives when it comes to understanding this thing that this drive that we have and the actions that we take. There are scenarios and there are activities and there are locations and there are circumstances that you and I know are triggers to things that we shouldn't do. And God has placed that in all of us. And it's called His Holy Spirit. And I've watched, and the Holy Spirit, by the way, is at work in people who even don't know Jesus because they know the triggers in their life. And if you and I can identify the triggers and say, I'm not going to allow that trigger to engage, then the gun won't go off. And you and I won't find ourselves where we don't want to be. Let me just close with a few things in the moment. The worship team is going to join us again for one last song. And actually, we get to do a water baptism today, which is awesome. But you may be thinking, okay, the Holy Spirit's talking to me. Jesus is convicting me. I know this is true in my life. I'm dealing with issues of sexual addiction or lust or even sexual activity that I know I shouldn't be involved in. How do I get beyond this? How do I handle this? Three things I just want to highlight that are kind of not... So understand, there is no secret pill. There is no silver bullet for sexual issues. But there are some things that you and I can do to move towards freedom in our life. The first one is this. It's this thing called confession. Confession gives you and I the ability to take what's inside of us and get it out. And it's that confession that first starts with our confessing our sin to God. And that's so important because you and I need to understand confession is simply stating to God what he already knows is true of our life. See, if you and I think somehow we have, we've confused God or we've shielded him from our sin, we've only fooled ourselves. He knows exactly what's going on and he's waiting for you and I to come to the moment where we actually admit what he already knows is true. That's called confession. It's you and I can never shock God by what we confess because he already knows it. But when you and I confess, there's something in us that is broken. There's something in us that is set free. And it's what's described for you and I in 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sin and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. If I am willing to admit that I have sinned, that I'm wrong, that I've failed in this area then the Bible tells us, because of what Jesus did on the cross, I am forgiven. I no longer have to live in that fear. I no longer have to live somehow hiding from God because now God knows that I've acknowledged what he already knew is true about my life. That is the first step. And for some of you here today, you need to do that. You need to be transparent. You need to confess your sin to God. That is the first step. But then there's another step that God gives to you and I. And it's when you and I have to learn to be accountable for our lives. See, it's really easy for some of us to confess our sin to God. But it's really difficult when we have to confess our sin to each other. That's when it gets real. Because that's when you and I have to pull off the hypocritical mask that keeps us hidden from people. And we have to show people who we really are. And we are in fear of judgment and rejection. But you and I need to understand God's created us. The only way freedom comes is not only through confession to Jesus, but confessing our sin to each other. That's why James wrote in James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
you need to get it out. You need to be transparent. Because the more you stay in secrecy, the more you stay hidden, the more the enemy will control you. And he will lie to you. And you won't be free. So what happens is when you're able to articulate to another person, this is what I'm dealing with. This is where I failed. This is where I've sinned. There's something in you that is broken. Because your pride now is gone. There's no way you can hide anymore. You're honest. And there's this weight that gets lifted off of you. That you don't have to carry this secret with you anymore. Because now somebody knows your secret. One of the practical ways to do that, this thing called accountability is through something called Life Transformation Groups. A number of guys are already in those groups. We talked about it at our last barbecue, guys. We'll talk about it again this Friday. And ladies, you'll be hearing about it in the, in the weeks ahead. But what a Life Transformation Group is, it's very simple. It is made up of three people. Same gender. Guys with guys, ladies with ladies. And you meet once a week, and this is all you do. You read scripture, you pray for each other and other people who don't know Jesus, and you answer 11 accountability questions. And one of them has to do with the sexual arena. And every week you get together. And by the way, accountability is not so you can slam people. Accountability is so you can, we can encourage each other to grow. And what happens is when week in and week out, you know somebody knows your secrets. And you know when you get to question number four or five or six, they're going to ask you, how did you do this week? You know that you're going to have to be honest with them. And you're going to be, because by the way, the last question is, have you been completely honest with me? And I've seen great change in people's lives when they have that added accountability. I know each week I'm going to do that. And so, by the way, at the end of this service, Steve Schmidt will be back at the Resource Center. We've got, there's some brochures on life transformation groups. Guys, if you want to get into a group and get you connected, ladies, you can grab the information. You'll hear more about it. But it's a great opportunity. And by the way, it's not just, it's not just about sexual issues. It's about being accountable for our lives. Because the sexual thing is only one of 11 questions. There's a whole lot of other things that we deal with in life that those things are important to have. Then the final thing, it's the confession, it's the accountability of confessing to each other. And then the third thing is you may need some resources to help you. You may have reached the point in your life where you're so far down the line in this that you know that even with confession, which you'll do to Jesus, and confession to somebody else, you know that you have become a sexual addict. That you know that you cannot control yourself. And maybe it's been in your life for years and years and years and you've gone through cycles, but you are still bound. And it may be 15, 20, 30 years and you're still bound. On our, on our website, on newhopewestcoast.org, if you go on the website this week and you click, there's a little button to the left that says resource. Click on that and then there's a tab down at the bottom and it's one of the tabs says sexual addiction. And you can click on that. And in there, there are some resources for you that lead to some online resources, some books, uh, a ministry that help you can actually get into a support group, even to the, some extent that if you feel like you need professional counseling in the area of sexual addiction, there are resources there. And I want you to know it is completely private. No one is going to be monitoring your web activity on the church website this week, okay? Nobody's going to know if it's you. But you know that you need that. Then go and find that resource because God wants us to be free in this. He really does. He wants us to be free of the shame that turns up the volume in our life. He wants us to experience what our sexuality is supposed to be, which is man and woman in the context of marriage, fulfilling of what God intended to be, a reflection of the nature of God. That's what he's purposed for us. That's why Jesus, in Matthew 5, 2,000 years ago, said to a group of people, you've got a narrow definition, or this very narrow definition of adultery, but let me tell you what adultery really looks like, because when he broadened that, guess what? Every single human being is guilty of this. 
Because all of us in our hearts and minds at one point have done the very thing that Jesus described. Therefore, we need confession, forgiveness, accountability, and some of us need even more resource. Why? Because there is freedom. I've seen guys and ladies get free in this area. It is possible. Some of you thinking, that's not possible. I've struggled. It's always going to be a part of who I am. No, it's not. It doesn't have to be. Because Jesus wants to bring freedom in this area. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Because even in this passage, which is very difficult and can be very convicting for us, we know that you love us. We know that your heart is so broken for us that you are willing to say what people didn't want to hear. That you're willing to say to a group of people, you've missed it on your definition of adultery. He was willing to say to a group of people by the time you, Lord Jesus, that you were done with your definition, that you basically, you had convicted all the people standing or sitting in front of you. But you risked that because you loved them so much that you wanted them to experience what you intended for us, Lord Jesus, in that area. So Lord, I pray that today that you would help us to find the freedom that you want to bring in the sexual arena that the lies that we have bought into and the things that we've participated in and the, the road that we've gone down, I pray, Lord, that today, through confessing our sin to you, asking for your forgiveness, becoming accountable with other people so they will help us to make that turn away from the way we used to live and live a life of repentance that continues to move towards you and away from the things that used to be. That, Lord Jesus, as we do that, I pray that you would bring restoration in our lives in terms of our own understanding of our sexuality and our sexual experience. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring reconciliation in marriages where there has been a violation through the act of adultery. That you would bring healing for those who have been victims of that. And that ultimately, Lord Jesus, our relationships would not trip over and fall into the landmines that we so easily can find ourselves in. But Lord, whether it be our anger, Lord, in the areas of our sexual identity and understanding and experience, that Lord, we would begin to live our life the way you purposed us to live, choosing to trust you over our own, what we would think our instincts or our own desires, and we would listen to your voice. And the result would be, Lord, that we would experience what you've purposed for humanity to experience, that we would experience that one flesh that helps us to actually reflect in our own experience in marriage who you are, the oneness of who you are with the Father. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you're doing today. Lord, let not one of us leave this place in shame or condemnation, but only the conviction of the Holy Spirit that pushes us towards you and away from our sin. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.